Well, do take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 and into chapter 2 this morning. It's going to be at the very end, starting in verse 22. So 1 Peter 1, 22 through 2, 12. If you're using the blue ESV Bibles and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 1014, 1014, and the sermon title is uh, how are disciples made, or you could ask how, how do we make disciples? How are disciples made, and our key words for our worshipers in training are word, spirit, and people. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, it will be helpful for you to know that we are in the third week of a brief series on the mission of the church. We are seeking, in essentially this month of January, to clarify and to renew our convictions about discipleship and about discipleship practically worked out here at Redeemer Baptist Church in the year 2023 and beyond. Uh, Discipleship is an important word for the church because Jesus, in Matthew 28, effectively tells the church that making disciples is the mission of the church. And so this is always a topic that needs to be discussed and to be thought through. But the elders uh, of RBC believe that this is a, a very important time in the life of our church that we are given a fresh reminder about the design and the purpose uh, and the path of discipleship at Redeemer Baptist Church. Right? By, by God's grace it we seem to be growing as a church and we want to know or we want people to know the Lord we want people to come to know the Lord who who don't currently and we want people who do know the Lord to be growing in their relationships with the Lord and with his people so if you're new here whether for first Sunday or 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 just a few weeks or months now or if you've been here for a long time we want to know and we want to communicate clearly what we're doing as a church and we want to be equipped each of us as we think about the especially the membership of Redeemer Baptist Church we want to be equipped to go into our homes our neighborhoods our places of work and play and to live on mission for Jesus Christ so what is that mission Well, as I've said, it's in short to make disciples of Jesus. But that broad mission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28 needs to be worked out in greater detail for each localized expression of the church, what we call local churches. And here's what we've agreed to as a church regarding the particular mission that God has given us here at at RBC. We said Redeemer Baptist Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God with joy, to love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. That's our mission statement. That's why we exist. Hopefully by now it's three Sundays in a row if you've been here since the beginning of the year that we've, we've said it from the pulpit. So hopefully by now we're, we're, if you didn't already have it memorized that maybe you're, it's sounding more and more familiar to, to you. We want that to be really baked into the DNA of, of the, the life, our life here at Redeemer Baptist Church. We want to know that mission statement so that we know our, 
any given thing that we do, we can sort of weigh it against that. And so that's why we exist. We want to love God, we want to love our neighbors, and we want to see transformed lives. Lives transformed for Jesus, by Jesus, as he is preached here in Rincon and around the world. And so to clarify our convictions about this mission, we're asking and answering five questions about discipleship that will help us to live in light of that mission for Jesus as a church. So far, we've addressed two questions. First, why do we even bother making disciples in the first place? If you weren't with us, the first week of January, we sought to answer that question from a text in Revelation 7. Essentially, we said that we want to be used by God to bring as many people as possible into that great innumerable multitude who will be gathered around the throne of Christ on the great day, enjoying the redemption that He has provided by His blood. Then last week, we asked, well, what, what is a disciple? If that's why we make disciples, what is a disciple? We looked at Ephesians 4, and there we said that a disciple... In short, is one who submits his or her mind, desires, and will to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. So if you missed either of those sermons, you can find them uh, on our YouTube channel or on, we- on our website. You can go back and listen to those. It would be helpful for you to do that because we've got three more questions. One today, two more in the weeks coming. In the weeks coming, we're going to look at um, who is involved in the process of making disciples and then where are disciples made. And today, as I said, we're answering the question, how are disciples made? So let's look at 1 Peter 1. I'm going to read verses 22 all the way through chapter 2, verse 12 to answer that question. And then we're going to outline this text and get to work. So 1 Peter Chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. He says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly with a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There are four things that I want you to notice with me from this text this morning, and wouldn't you know it, they correspond to the four things uh, that we have in this discipleship document under the heading, How Are Disciples Made? Four things, four things. That works out well. Um, and, and you can summarize these four things under four headings, beginning with the letter S. Speak, seek, uh, serve, and strive. Um, and admittedly, we're going to find them sort of scattered a bit throughout this text. It's not necessarily a neat and orderly flow. We'll, we'll kind of, we're going to look at some verses and then double back and look at them again. And it shouldn't be too confusing, but there's not a necessarily just straight orderly flow to the verses. But uh, we'll see these four things here. So the first thing that we're going to note is that uh, disciples are made through the Word of God. So the Word of God needs to be spoken. We speak God's Word. Then we see that disciples are made by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we need to seek the Spirit of God in our disciple-making endeavors. Third, we'll see that disciples are made by the... Or sorry, that was second point. Third, we'll see that uh, uh, the disciples are made as we serve together as God's people. And fourth, we'll see that disciples are made as we strive toward God's purpose. So we speak God's word, we seek God's spirit, we serve as God's people, and we strive toward his purpose. So look with me in the first place. This will roughly be chapter 1, 22 through verse, uh, verse 8 of chapter 2. Uh, we'll see that we need to speak the word. We'll see the necessity of God's word in the Christian life. Peter is emphatic here regarding the centrality that God's word must hold for our lives as his people. He mentions obedience to the truth, the living and abiding word, the word of the Lord, the word which uh, is the good news preached. He references the pure spiritual milk, which is a reference to the word. And then he makes his point all throughout by quoting scripture four different times throughout these verses. So the takeaway is that there is no Christian living without the Word of God. Here's what we've said in our discipleship document. We've said disciples are made by the Word of God being spoken, expounded, and set forth as the authoritative, sufficient, inerrant, divine revelation that it is. And one of the challenges of preaching a topical series like this one is that a sermon needs to be a, a singularly focused message that preaches one essential main point from one essential main text. But when you're seeking to explore the concept of discipleship and disciple-making, which isn't set forth in full in just one particular place in the Bible, uh, it's easy to want to hop around a bit, uh, and not just stay planted in, in one text. And so 
we're, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay here in, in 1 Peter. But I want to confess up front that there, there's a lot more that, that could be and should be said about Scripture than is said here in, in 1 Peter 1 and 2. And there's a lot more that could be or should be said about Scripture than what we've said in this document, which is why we have our Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Um, so this isn't all we believe about Scripture or even how Scripture interacts with discipleship, but it is an important uh, summary of the essential nature and position of the Bible in the Christian life. And that's what Peter is doing here. And so that's why we're considering what Peter says about God's Word. So let's see what he says. He says that God's Word, which according to Jesus in John 17, is the truth. He said God's Word works as a purifying agent for your souls when you commit yourself to do what it says. He says to his audience, you have purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love. In other words, loving one another, a command that is second only to the command to love God, this command to love one another is only possible for those who have been purified and made fit for such service by the Word of God. Peter goes on and he says that we're not only made pure by the Word, but we're made alive through it. He says to his readers, you were born again. There in 23. You were born again through the living and abiding word of God. Then he quotes Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 8, which contrasts the living and never-ending word of God with the frail and fleeting life of all other living things. Namely here, flesh and flowers. His point? His point is that it is through the word of God which he calls the good news or the gospel. He says it's through this word preached to spiritually dead sinners that eternal life is imparted. So we're made alive by the word of God. We see that the word of God is the means by which life from above, as Jesus calls it in John 3, is imparted to spiritually dead sinners. And it is the means by which those now alive Sinners are purified for loving service to the body of Christ. Well, then he speaks of the nourishing power of the word in chapter 2, verse 2. He says that in light of the life that they now have through the word, they should put away sinful living. And he describes this in terms like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. He says they should, he says, put those away, put those off, don't do those things. Instead, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, that you may become mature. Um, on, at, on the Ligonier website, you can find this about Peter's phrase here, uh, pure spiritual milk. He's referencing the, what they said is the purity of God's word and its function as the essential diet of the believer. The milk includes all of God's special revelation, and it is to be consumed with an insatiable hunger. That's what they said. So, God's Word makes us alive. God's Word fits us for service, and it strengthens us in the faith so that we are not 
spiritually weak and malnourished. From there in verses 4 through 8 of chapter 2, we see that God's word unites God's people together as living stones, fit together as the dwelling place for God. Peter says to his readers, he says, as you come to Christ, as you come to the incarnate word, according to John 1, he says, you become living stones, which are built up into a spiritual house, a temple, if you will, according to the priesthood, the sacrifice language that's used here, we are made into a temple for God. And so Peter is is emphasizing here the centrality of God's word in our lives as Christians. The word uh, builds up believers into a house fit for God's dwelling. But then he quotes uh, three other scriptures here. Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm, 18, or Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8, 14 to make the point that those who reject the word, who don't long for it as pure spiritual milk, who don't make it their essential diet, but people who reject the word, they stumble at it. And they receive dishonor. So how are disciples made? Well, first, it's by the speaking and the obeying of God's word, which makes us alive, which purifies us and fits us for service, which nourishes us spiritually and builds us up into an acceptable dwelling place for the triune God. So that's the first thing. We speak God's word. Look with me in the second place um, through the exact same set of verses where we see the the necessary presence of the Holy Spirit in the transformation of disciples from one degree of holiness to another. Here's what we said about the necessity of the Spirit in uh, in our document here. Disciples are made... By seeking the blessing of God's Spirit upon the speaking of His Word. So that people become obedient to Christ in body and soul. Now, we got to admit, Peter doesn't explicitly call us to seek the Holy Spirit in this text. Uh, He doesn't even directly mention the Spirit here. So... How do we get that from this passage? Well, as, as good Reformed Christians, right, we, we know that the Word and the Spirit, never, they never work apart. They're inseparable from one another. So if we read through those verses, these same set of verses we just read, particularly verse 122 through 2, um, 8, we see, we see the Spirit there. So if you're reading through it, looking for the Spirit, what do you find? Well, the first thing that you notice is that Peter uses the word spiritual a couple times here. He uses it once in verse 2 and once in verse 5. In today's sort of Western society, spiritual usually means something, what, like vague? Something sort of kind of mystical. It's, it's, sort of, it's, uh, it's like when people say, I'm, I'm spiritual but not religious. They don't really mean anything concrete by it. They, they just are talking about something that's kind of hard to define, something vague and, and, and mystical, um, but not particularly tied to any person or particular idea. In Scripture, the word spiritual connotes the realm of the Spirit. Consider Ephesians 2. We looked at Ephesians 4 last week. In Ephesians 2, Paul uses very, very similar language 
uh, as Peter here. He says over there in Ephesians 2 that we are members of God's household and we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then Ephesians 2.22, he says this, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the language of these two passages is, is extremely similar. Paul just makes explicit what Peter seems to be implying. And the idea is that we are built into a spiritual house, which means a house for the Spirit. We are a temple indwelled by the Holy Spirit, which Paul makes plain in his letters to the uh, Corinthians as well. Now, if you want more proof of the Spirit's presence here, look back up with me back in 1 Peter 1, 22-23. There he says that it's through the Word that his readers must that it's through the word that his readers were born again. But what, what is it that Jesus says about being born again? What did Jesus say about being born again? Jesus, Peter's teacher, what did he say about being born again in John 3, 5? Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is clear, as Peter is clear, They're talking about two sides of the same coin, in a sense. But uh, Jesus says, to be born again, we must be born of the Spirit. And there in John 3, he's actually referencing Ezekiel 36, where God depicts the giving of the Spirit as sprinkling with clean water. So the life of God's people is brought about through the Word of God and the Spirit working together. And if you want to see a place where that actually works out practically, go and read Ezekiel 36 and then go and read Ezekiel 37. Right after this promise of the coming Spirit, God tells Ezekiel to speak, prophesy over a valley of dry bones. And so we see the Word and the Spirit work together to bring about these, the life of the dry bones. They, they come back to life and it's a picture of the house that God is building through His Word and Spirit together. Okay, one more. All through this passage, Peter is boasting in the Word of God as the agent of salvation for God's people. But what does Peter say about where the Word of God comes from? Well, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, he says that the prophets of the Old Testament prophesied, how? Through the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Peter 1, 16-21, he says that all of Scripture owes its origin not to human will and interpretation, but to what? To the Holy Spirit. So there it is. According to Peter, over and over again, the Spirit is necessary for the Christian life. The Spirit is necessary as the Spirit works with the Word of God to bring about spiritual life in God's people. To build them up as a dwelling place fit for His presence and for His service. And so we must seek the Spirit in our endeavors, in all of our endeavors as a church, to make disciples for Jesus. We must seek Him and His blessing upon us if our labors are going to be effective in making disciples for Jesus. To ignore the Spirit in our work 
is as detrimental to our work as it would be to ignore the word. So we need to speak the word. We need to seek the spirit. Third, we need to serve. And here we'll look at verses 4 through uh, 10. We see a third piece of discipleship here, summed up with the word serve or, or service. He's already called on believers to love one another with brotherly love in 122. And then he says in verses 5 and 6 here, he says that we're built up into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood who offers spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Then in verses 9 and 10, he calls on his readers. He calls his readers a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There's that, that language again, priesthood again. He says a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and that we are to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord since they are now God's people. Despite not having been so prior. But because of God's mercy in our lives, we are God's people. So we serve, and here we see as well, that involves speaking. We proclaim the excellencies of God. Here's what we write about service in our discipleship document. We write, disciples are made by serving together as His people. God has called us to this joint work as co-laborers. And so we work together as His people to make disciples. The, the point is that God has been pleased in His infinite wisdom, to extend the transformation of the world that He and He alone accomplishes through the speech and the service of His people. God saves sinners, and then He makes them priests. Now, we don't, we don't have time to unpack anything close to a, a full theology of the priesthood. But in short, we can say this, that the priests of the Old Testament and their temple service, served as uh, the mediatorial instruments of God's presence in the world. And now, in the New Testament, God is mediated to the world and the world to Him. How? Well, fundamentally, through Jesus Christ in the Word. But Jesus is the true temple. He is the true priest, our true high priest. And His disciples, believers, are made into a priest Hood, where we are built up into this temple, this priesthood where God's Spirit dwells, and we are a holy, and we see a kingly, a royal priesthood as we work as co-laborers with Christ to extend God's presence to every corner of the earth. As we said, we're not only priests, but we're prophets and kings in this service, Right? operating under the power and wisdom and position of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We are prophets, how? In that we proclaim the excellencies of of Christ. We're priests in that we serve in the temple, that is, the church, and we offer spiritual sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans 12, of holy lives. And we're kings in that we're a royal priesthood, and we extend God's rule through his, uh, it, we extend God's rule of the world through His Word. And it's all summed up in the idea that we are now God's people. We're His people and we work together as His people with one another. This is not an, an isolated 
job for you. This is not disciple making. It's not something that I as the pastor do. And we'll look more at this when we talk about who does it. But this is something that we all do. And we all do it together as his prophets, priests, and kings serving under the prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. So we serve as God's people. And we also strive toward God's purpose. Here we'll see this in verses 11 and 12. All of this is done by God's people, as God's people, as God's people strive toward God's purpose in the world. And what is that purpose? What's the sight and enjoyment of God and His glory in all the earth? Right, that's the way this passage ends, the glory of God. And that's the end for which we strive. This is what we wrote in our document. We said, with God's goal and purpose of redemption in the world ever before us, we can strive to make disciples of all nations without ceasing. Disciples are made through a commitment to endurance in the mission we have received from the Lord. So Peter says, in light of all this, he wants his readers, in verse 11, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says, keep your conduct pure among the Gentiles. Keep it honorable. Why? So that the false accusations of the heathen may be controverted by your good deeds. And they will have to glorify God because of you. Because of His people. Now generally throughout this letter, um, Peter uses this language a few different times about the, the, the Gentiles glorifying God. And, and often it, it, it's our good works serve to condemn those who vilify us. That's largely the idea in most places. But he, he does say in the next chapter, in 1 Peter 3, 1, he says that wives may win disobedient husbands by respectful and pure conduct. So the glorifying of God on the day of visitation for many present-day naysayers will be one of a forced subjugation of, of some kind. Where because they rejected God's word, rejected his people, but the good works of God's people serve to condemn them on the day, there will be some, at least according to 1 Peter 3.1, who have been won to Christ through the good works and the holy living of other people, of other Christ, of Christians in their lives. Right? And then as the letter flows from there, he calls us to strive for the purpose of God in every aspect of our life. He goes on from here to talk about living rightly before the civil authorities. Then in chapter 3, living rightly in the home. And then... After that, in verses 8 through 22 of chapter 3, living rightly in the face of persecution. Right, we, we strive for God's purpose in the world. Right, the, the takeaway of all of this is that the power of discipleship comes from the Holy Spirit working through the Word. As God's people serve as God's co-laborers to extend His presence and His rule throughout the world, 
as his prophets, priests, and kings. And, and we invite others to join us in this labor as they strive, as we strive for the glory of God. We want to live holy and upright lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So that's it. We speak, we seek, we serve, and we strive. But let's close with this. Because that's not all that we wrote. That's not all we said in this document on discipleship. There's a, another little section there at the end that says the path of discipleship on page 3. And there we outline some uh, sort of a practical pathway for discipleship here at, at Redeemer Baptist Church. And so I want to I end with this, that having answered very briefly, obviously, uh, these four S's, speak, seek, serve, and strive, I want to offer this in closing with, uh, I want to offer a practical path for discipleship. And mostly I just want to pretty much just read what we wrote here Make a very few comments and then we're going to wrap up and be done. So the first thing that we said for how discipleship works at Redeemer Baptist Church, the idea is first we have to engage. Right? There are many unbelievers around us and they've had very little exposure to the gospel, some of them. It's hard to believe in 2023, uh, you know, Southern America, in Georgia, Southeast Georgia and Rinkin, that there are people who've had very little exposure to the gospel, but it's true. And so we at Redeemer Baptist Church need to think of kind and creative ways to meet them. So we want to engage them. Second, having met these unbelievers who live uh, uh, amongst us in our county and in our, our town. While we do want to be their friends, we don't merely want to be their friends. We want to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. We must, we must be purposeful in sharing the gospel with them. And we do this in a number of different ways. We can invite them to, to join us for worship on Sunday mornings. We can invite them to join us for a Bible study if they are, have questions. We can just have coffee with them or go to lunch with them and answer questions and talk to them about the Lord. And sometimes we overcomplicate it. Right? What, what's Jesus done for you? Just tell people that. And if you get really tripped up, you don't know how to get the words out, Introduce them to somebody who, who doesn't, who, who knows, who has maybe that, the gift of evangelism. Right? That's how we work together as a body. Right? So we evangelize. Establish, third, for those unbelievers that God then graciously and sovereignly saves and joins to our fellowship. The, so this is the point where they've, they've become Christians, they have place their faith in Jesus, they've made a public profession of faith and been baptized, they've become members of, of this church. Well, they need to be established then in the excellent doctrine of Scripture. To long for the Word and to know it, to, to eat it up and to be established in it. We want to move beyond consuming basic elementary doctrine. We don't want to leave it behind in the sense that we forget it, but we want to go deeper 
in our walk with the Lord and our living out the Christian life. We want to be instructed in the deeper things of the faith. So we engage, we evangelize, we establish, forth we equip. Christians embrace, as we Christians embrace weightier matters of truth and we grow in our pursuit of holiness, we are equipped to use our spiritual gifts to expand God's kingdom by making disciples of other people. And when we look at the who question in a couple weeks, we're going to see that, how that works out a little bit more. So that's the four, again, 30,000 foot view here, but that's the, the fourfold process for what does discipleship look like at RBC is that we engage, we evangelize, we establish, and then we equip. And the, now the person who's equipped is now going out and, and engaging someone and then evangelizing someone and helping them with the rest of us to get them established and equipped. And then that person goes out and on and on it goes and it multiplies all to the glory of God as we aim for that Revelation 7 meeting place. So that's how disciples are made here. There's much more to say about it, about how this needs to be done. So if you want to know more about discipleship here at at RBC, come and ask. Come and ask me. Ask one of the elders. Chat with Dan and join a small group. Right, small group is a great place to be in the month of January. We're seeking practically in our small groups to work out some of the, the practical nature of this. Asking some questions and, and, and making plans about how we can be more faithful in our pursuit of disciple making here at RBC. So seriously, join a small group if you haven't already. But let me back up. What if you've never made a profession of faith in Christ, but you desire to do so, or or in the coming weeks or months you desire to do so? And and I want to be clear. Adults, I'm definitely talking to you, but, but kids, I am definitely talking to you. Children of Christian parents here at Redeemer Baptist Church, whether you're, you're very young or older, but you still live at home, whatever. If you, if you believe in Jesus, but you've not made a profession of faith, if you've not done that, and particularly what I mean by that is followed him in uh, publicly identifying with him through baptism and church membership, I want to encourage you to, to pray about that, to ask the Lord about that, to talk with your parents and to come talk with, with me, with us. Because that's what the Lord is, is calling you to do. If, if you believe but you've not done that, it's okay. But we, we want to, to do that and encourage you to do that. But, backing up even further, what if you're in here and you don't believe in Jesus at all, whether you're a child or an adult? Well, I commend Him to you now. And I plead with you to consider this question. What is it that keeps you from looking to Him by faith? What is it that keeps you clinging to this world, clinging to your claim on it in the present moment? The, the present moment is passing away, and eternity will be before you before you know it. And so would you look with faith to Jesus and be saved? And if you don't know how to do that, or you don't know what that is, come and ask. But I pray that all of us would look to Jesus, either for the first time today, 
or for the billionth time today and find him to be the rest that our souls so need. Amen.